On today's show, we have a bunch of immigration updates from the national to the local. We're also going to talk about a red state maternal health provider exodus. Uh, we're going to debate the merits of virtual reality school. And then we're going to talk about a Gen Z military recruiting shortage. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. This is just a friendly reminder to all of our listeners to please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps us quite a lot. And if you are a fan of the show, please consider sharing it today with a friend of yours who might also be in need of some good faith political debate. There you go. Um, Ricky, wonderful time to be in New York. Uh, I live across the street from a school. Uh, and just to see all the kids out there, all the buzz... You know, I would say this is, you know, among the best times in New York City, the first week of September. But as we'll get to, there's a lot happening in this city that isn't so positive. But let's let's first start at the national level. We did this this segment on immigration and we talked about a lot of stuff. What's happening at the border, what's happening in our cities. Uh, and there are four distinct updates that we have to give today as it relates to immigration, as it relates to those stories. But first, let's talk about the border itself. What's happening down there? Yeah. So this month or this past month in August, illegal family crossings uh, reached an all-time high. There were 91,000 arrests of people and families by Border Patrol just that month. Um, and the prior record was 84,000 in May of 2019. This is the first time that um, families have past adults in arrests and interactions at the border since Biden took office. Um, and this follows a, a sharp fall in May and June when new restrictions were rolled out. But now we've seen a 30% rise in two months in a row um, in the overall numbers, families and non-families. So we have a grand total of 177,000 arrests in just August. Wow. Uh, and we, we talked about this the last time we did a segment on immigration where the numbers were dipping down, but we pointed to, uh, you know, crossings way south of the border into Mexico and to other Central American countries and how those were actually increasing. And, we, you know, we left that segment wondering, like, hey, is this just some kind of delay going on here? And are we going to see an uptake? And it looks like we, we are. Uh, we also talked about this floating barrier in the Rio Grande that Texas put up. And uh, just yesterday, a federal judge ruled that Texas has to remove that barrier at a time when there are record crossings. You know, to remind people, I'm not sure what that barrier was doing really um, to deter anybody because it was really small and it was just in one section of the river. But it seems like both the border crisis in the political debate and fight around the border isn't cooling down. Yeah, definitely seems like as we anticipated, the the temporary pause proved to be totally temporary. And we also are seeing our own crisis unfold here on the local level in New York City as well. Yeah, I mean, this is getting ugly. Uh, Mayor Adams has been quite heated going after both the governor and the president. Uh, let's go to a clip of him. Started with a madman down in Texas decided he wanted to bust people up to New York City. 110,000 migrants. We have to feed, clothe, house, educate the children, wash their laundry sheets, give them everything they need, health care. And this team here, we stated, let's do everything possible before we have to push it out into neighborhoods and communities. 
Month after month, I stood up and I said, this is going to come to a neighborhood near you. Well, we're here. We're here. We're getting no support on this national crisis. And we're receiving no support. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. Ricky, this is actually playing out in, in my hometown of Staten Island, where the city has been attempting to use a closed Catholic school. It's actually a school that used to be a rival of mine to house migrants and there's huge protests outside of this school. And obviously, you know, Adams is criticizing the Biden administration and Abbott here. I do think there are a couple of questions I'm left asking in this. One is uh, he's criticizing Abbott as a madman for sending 10,000 to New York. Now, if New York can't handle an influx, why should Texas have to handle the, you know, the entirety of the influx, right? Like I continue to believe that we should be distributing migrants around the country and maybe you know perhaps new york is taking more than its fair share but this is a city that has been welcoming to immigrants it has a politics that's you know so called pro immigration it was a sanctuary city now to to adams's credit he wasn't on the sort of far left side of a lot of those issues but what i want to know is where are all these people where are these you know sanctuary city advocates where are all the liberals you know they're 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 not dealing with the migrant crisis you know you know here in Borham hill we're not dealing with the migrant crisis they're not dealing with it um, in the fanciest neighborhoods of the city, uh, there, you know, this crisis seems to be playing out in places like uh, Staten Island or in Rockland County. And I do wonder whether, like, if Adams is correct that this is going to, you know, I think it's hyperbole to say destroy the city, but if, if he's saying that, you know, the migrant crisis is going to reach everyone's doorstep, I would really want to know more about how that's going to happen. Yeah, I think, I mean, that totally remains to be seen. But seeing this tonal shift, like he did refer to New York as a sanctuary city while he was on the campaign trail. And I don't think that was like a a mean passion issue of his. So I don't really like point the finger directly at him. I think he just inherited that that narrative and that status. But it's amazing to see how how when reality actually confronts you, how different people are are acting in the political sphere. It's like, what is the saying that everyone's a liberal until they got get mugged or something like that? Or, or conservatives are just liberals who got mugged. Like it's basically that sort of situation of like this life experience that it's so easy to point the finger at, at Texas, at border states, at cities near the border and say, oh, you should be a sanctuary and you should be welcoming. But this is a drop in the bucket relative. So the optics are really unflattering and... It's utopianism meeting reality, in my in my view. Well, I think like you could be pro-immigration without believing that this is the way to go about immigration. Meaning, you know, I think that this country should be letting in people based on priorities of the jobs that we need. Right? That's my basic sense. And instead, what we have right now is a system where people are coming into the country often without permission. They're seeking asylum, and some of those asylum cases are legitimate. But a lot of those are just following a script, you know, like people know when they come across the, the border, you file an asylum claim and it gets you in a certain kind of process here, R- whether you're a subject to political persecution or not. We also don't have a, a way to rank order. There are a lot of countries out there for which anybody leaving that country could claim political persecution. And so the question is, how do we in an orderly and organized way 
bring people into this country and uh, balance the, the desire to play a role in furthering human rights with a desire to fill the jobs that we need and also um, the very real reality of infrastructure, schools, the tax base, culture, political buy-in, right? These are all things that matter in immigration, right? And I think like it is a, it is a rather inconvenient series of events for people who are on the more far left, you know, super permissive side of immigration. Uh, one other thing, Ricky, that uh, we talked about was uh, DocGo. If you remember this, this contract that New York City signed with this sort of COVID per, you know, what was it like a, like a, what COVID were they doing testing. for COVID? They were COVID testing. Oh, right. And vaccine distribution. Yeah. 400 plus million dollar contract to help manage the uh, migrant crisis in New York to a, a company that was a COVID company, not a, you know, didn't have experience with the kind of work with migrants that we need. We talked all about the problems with this company, et cetera. Uh, well, just this week, Brad Lander, who's the comptroller, basically rejected the contract, uh, saying that there are all sorts of issues with the contract. And one of the things he pointed out was that this is a medical services company, not a logistics company or social services provider or legal service provider. Now, Adams has the power to override Lander and unilaterally approve this contract, which it seems like he may. It seems like he indicated this yesterday that he's heading in that direction. This is pretty ugly stuff. I mean, and, and apparently, like according to the reporting I saw, New York City hasn't even found the money to pay this contract in full yet. Like there's a huge outstanding balance. Yeah, I think the optics on this either way are terrible for Adams because if he approves this totally like bungled deal with a company or a consulting firm that seems to be all too comfortable historically with the government and um, all too comfortable vacuuming up money in, in crisis situations, um, that looks bad. And if he wastes all this time and money and, and infrastructure to create this deal and then walks away from it because it's so blatantly horrible. That also looks bad because there's still no answers to these questions. So, I mean, he's in a no-win situation um, and compounded by the fact that we have this six-month moratorium on whether um, on anyone who comes in and seeks asylum cannot work for six months, which makes sense in a logical front in one sense because you don't want people to just come in and do their six months and leave and abuse the system. But it's no longer working in, in practice in any way, shape, or form. And we have tons of job openings here. And I'm sure that many of the people who are dependent on the state at the moment actually would like to work and participate in society and, and pull themselves up in American society. And yet they're being told if they want to be law-abiding, they are not allowed to do so. Yeah, it is a huge, huge mess. It's also worth mentioning that Brad Lander is probably the one of you know the most or one of the most credible threats to Adams's re-election when it comes down to it so uh, this could be the beginning of uh, a political battle that will play out in the Democratic primary next time uh, so something to keep an eye on well okay let's let's talk about some uh, red states now uh, there was this article in the New York Times that caught my attention because it we don't we haven't talked about abortion a lot since uh, the Dobbs ruling but the there was this article that looked at uh, a, it, it claims in the New York Times that uh, there is an exodus of maternal fetal experts and providers from red states because of abortion laws. Uh, they were looking at in particular, like they, they really zeroed in on Idaho in this case. Uh, and I'll quote from one part of this piece to give you a sense of the scale of the problem. 
Uh, all told, more than a dozen labor and delivery doctors, including five of Idaho's nine long-term maternal fetal experts, will have either left or retired by the end of this year. Uh, they also point to data um, around other states like surveys, like a good example was Oklahoma, where more than half of the state's counties are uh, considered maternity care deserts. Three quarters of obstetrician gynecologists who responded to a survey said they were either planning to leave, considering leaving, or would leave if they could. And they talk about how this is also playing on Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee. What's your sense of this? I, I, it's always tough with these articles because obviously there's a combination of like macro data and anecdotes. Mm. Um, do you buy that this is a real thing? I'm not sold in the sense of, I'm, I think that there's probably a response bias in these surveys um, that would be pretty considerable. And the sample size is so tiny um, in these rural areas. But I would say, I mean, it definitely seems to be at the very least a trend worth keeping an eye on. Um, the They said that there were more than a dozen labor and delivery doctors in Idaho um, who are leaving their post or leaving the state or retiring by the end of the year. It's, you know, it's hard to say whether or what the motivations are of each of those people. Um, and uprooting your life entirely is is something that's pretty dramatic. There could be other uh, factors at play. But I, I do think what I would, um, what they what they discuss that I'm a little bit more, more comfortable saying is almost definitely a thing is, you know, people who were graduating from medical school who were going into these fields, it's pretty logical to choose a different state if you're if you've not yet put your roots down. So I think going forward that could be a much more real situation, but at the moment I'm not entirely sold that this is some sort of mass exodus necessarily. Yeah, and it seems like to the extent that there is an exodus what could be driving it? I think a couple of things the article makes clear is one is when they interview doctors they talk about how the change to criminal liability is very different than civil liability, right? Like if you've got malpractice insurance, et cetera, like, you know, some of these doctors in this article are saying, look, it's one thing to worry about lawsuits. It's another thing to worry about being locked up. And I think if you combine that with earlier versions of these laws in Idaho and Tennessee, for example, had an affirmative defense provision, you know, which essentially means that doctors had the burden of proof that they ha they would have to show that any abortion they performed was medically necessary. So, you know, this is similar to like if a defendant in a murder case would have to show that they acted in self-defense, right? So the burden is shifted onto the provider. And so I think a lot of providers were looking at those laws and saying, whoa, like, this is a lot to ask. Like every time I provide an abortion, I have to justify it and the burden's on me, which means that if I don't satisfy that burden, I'm criminally liable and there are years in prison attached to these uh, statutes. Now, Idaho and Tennessee have clarified their laws recently, but I think it's, you know, the damage might have been done, you know, if you've lost some providers there. And it's also there are other elements of these laws that people don't like too. But I think those those are the ones that I think were scaring people the most. Yeah. And I think that where this actually really matters the most is the most rural areas, um, certainly rather than the urban centers. But yeah, I think it's a it's a a trend worth keeping an eye on in terms of what the the larger reverberations of the um the Dobbs decision will be, and certainly something to continue to look into. Well, Ricky, Emma Green wrote this article for The New Yorker that I, I can already tell, I, I know you're not going to love this, but maybe I'll be wrong, but um, virtual reality school 
she talks about a school called Optima Academy Online, which is an all virtual school that was launched in 2022. And what virtual means is different for different students, but at least in the older grades, the kids are entering like a metaverse type environment and having their classes in this metaverse environment. There's a lot of texture in the article about what that looks like, going to visit ancient ruins or going to Everest with their class. Uh, And the article has a few notable things in here that we could separate out. There's a big deep dive into the politics of the founder. There is a deep dive into the pedagogy. And then there's a deep dive, in, and maybe I'm giving them too much credit to say deep dive, but there's also a, a an aside about school choice. So I'm going to give you the dealer's choice here, Ricky. Where do you want to go first? Do you want to talk about the pedagogy? Do you want to talk about the politics of the founder and whether they're relevant at all, given how much ink was given to it? Or do we want to talk about the school choice aspect of this? Or mystery box number four that I'm not aware of? I don't know. I'm going to go mystery box four because this is another one of those articles where I'm like, what form of journalism is this where it's like literally a book about this. I I truly don't get these long form essays and I did not need to know so much of the founders politics. I'm not even sure that it's entirely relevant, but we could start there because I think it's interesting that this this woman is um certainly a conservative activist. Her husband's a Republican uh, local lawmaker. Um, she's oh, he's a member like, of Congress. I think it's Byron Donald's wife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and she's an accountant by trade, but she's kind of in the Moms for Liberty sort of pool of people um, down in Florida. And, it, you know, there's it's interesting to me because on one hand, this definitely seems like a logical, like futuristic outgrowth of the school choice conservative movement and another option for parents. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure, not that everyone has to think the same way on the right, but I'm pretty sure we were like the the outspoken opponents of Zoom school and saying this is not healthy for kids and they're not connecting in person and this is, they need to to touch grass and see faces and have conversations and, and they can't wear masks because they aren't connecting with one another. And I certainly believe all those things, but I think what's even worse is, you know, what's worse than a mask is putting goggles over your eyeballs and growing up in a digital <laughs> world. I'm definitely... This is the, the reaction I was waiting. Yeah, yeah, I'm not... I this, this, is, this is the dystopian stuff that I'm not into. So I don't know. I I don't know what box I opened, but maybe a little bit of all of them. Well, okay, let's dispense with the politics really quickly. So the, the author, uh, and this is The New Yorker. It's a very New Yorker bend. And the the article talks about the trace the evolution of this founder, Erica Donald's, to from Common Core to Moms for Liberty to Republican politics to Hillsdale College curriculum and all that and and look like these are these are all probably objectively verifiable things or not right so like if she was a participant in right wing politics and her view of school and the role of school uh, is informed by a conservative outlook then perhaps that's relevant. Um, I, I do wonder whether if this was somebody who came out of democratic politics, there would have been as much attention to the politics, you know? Like, it, it feels like like Emma is writing this article from a democratic perspective and so feels the need to point out the po- politics of this person, Maybe right? Maybe because like her last article was the cancel culture article that I was mentioned in, and she got, like, ripped a new one for even just treating oh, us like the humans. Same for this is yeah she like she she was i mean i think she was definitely quite suspicious of us and our 
our whole shtick, but she was very kind. And I thought that her writing was fair and it was just like an interesting observational piece. And the way that she just got ratioed to hell on Twitter for God forbid, even acknowledging that, that we exist in New York city is just really interesting. So maybe she's atoning for, for her Twitter sin. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, what she would say is, well, Erica Donalds uh, has been very clear what her motivation is and her motivation matters. So we could leave it up to the audience to decide whether how relevant that is. It's certainly in the article. Uh, I would say before we get to the pedagogy, which is where I want to spend the most of the segment, there also is this attention paid to school choice, right? Uh, there is one line after another about this is part of the movement for school choice. This is school choice. This is privatizing education, right? Uh, and and the way it's written is basically saying, number one, this school is basically a reflection of the school choice environments in Arizona and Florida. It's currently in Florida. It's growing to Arizona. And two is there's like a almost a, a subtle, if not overt, sort of attachment of people's discomfort with this model to the concept of school choice to be like, oh, you don't like this? Well, this is what school choice brings you. So I have a couple of thoughts about this. Number one is school choice is a term that is is used in ways that is narrowly tailored to uh, allow liberals to live within their cognitive distance, right? They don't call school choice living in the Upper West Side uh, in a, an expensive neighborhood with a high-performing school while people who live in poorer neighborhoods don't exercise school choice. We don't call that school choice, right? We don't call school choice the, just the option to send your kids to private school as, you know, tons of, you know, huge progressives who are pro-public school progressives like Elizabeth Warren have done, right? We don't call that school choice, right? We call school choice, and in this article, she calls school choice vouchers and charter schools. And what do those two things have in common? Even as she points out, they're, they're popular with people of color. Right, she she has to devote a you know she has this obligatory paragraph way deep into the piece to be like oh yeah by the way you know parents of color actually like these <laughs> it's almost like written about like it, like it's like a confusing reality like oh my goodness like what is it they could like about this well perhaps they don't like the options that you've given them and perhaps you exercising your version of school choice uh, progressives. Uh, is actually leading to an inequitable system for everybody else. And maybe like your proud public school reality is coming at the expense of other people who then are left to find their own options. But then you label their moves as school choice and leave out of the discussion everything that you do. So Ricky, that's my kind of like, I'll get off my soapbox on that one, but people can read that. And like, that's the whole tinge of this article is like, basically like, all right, let me attach Republican politics to this. Let me attach school choice and school choice movement to this. And by the way, treat those two things as the same as if there aren't progressives for school choice. But then third, there is this the bigger question is, well, is this a growing phenomenon that should be taken seriously? And two, is it a good or bad way to do school? I, I think I, you know, I think the audience could tell where you are in this one, but Ricky, tell me a little bit more about where you see this going. Do you think more parents are going to take advantage of this? Should we ban it or should we just ridicule it or some, something else? Yeah, I don't want to ban it. I mean, they have this to each their own. Um, I will definitely ridicule it. But um, in terms of the the take up here, so basically what they do is they use a Meta Quest 2 headset um, and they have four to five sessions a day, which lasts from 30 to 40 minutes. And then they can do like independent homework and their teachers are available virtually. 
Um, and at the moment, I was surprised considering how recent this technology is and how recent, I mean, this launched in 2022. They already have 170 full-time students and they expect that that will double this fall. Um, and more like school situations like this are expected to pop up in Arizona and Michigan, which both have um, more relaxed kind of experimental school laws um, on the books. And so I would say this is definitely like, it's not, I don't think this is going to be like the nationwide new school fad necessarily, but I think that more experiments like this will pop up. I would say, you know, I'm, I'm charitable to it in a sense, because I think that the, demographic that's being catered to here is somebody who might want to send their kid to a private school that can provide a Western civilization-based and liberal arts-based um, sort of education, but might not have either geographically or financially the means to do so. So I do think that this it does expand things beyond. Um, I could also see a world where if it got so large or so popular, you could have like a pod sort of scenario where like, you know, there's a ton of, of kids across the state that can go to a VR thing together, but then also have like a local group of people to interact with. Um, but I would also say like, I'm not totally against it, like the concept of some school involving this. I think it's, I mean, the the concept of like going back in time or going to space, like it seems super engaging and interesting. I think it just needs to be counterbalanced with actually seeing humans in in person but i mean i don't know i think it could be a good part of education but i just don't like the concept of it being fully education although i think there's a a meaningful off-ramp potential with that with the pod sort of thing yeah you know there this is obviously an extension of technology right there's already a lot of zoom schooling etc there have the concept of virtual school has existed for quite some time now and uh, a good a good example of virtual school, not virtual reality school, is the Hawaii Technology Academy, who I've been talking to over the past few weeks, and they've invited me to come out in November to see what they have done in response to the wildfires, where they were actually able to stand up a school uh, in the areas devastated by the wildfires, basically overnight, uh, in part because they're a blended model. They have centers all across Hawaii where kids can come in a couple days a week, but they can also do virtual uh, and so I'm looking forward to seeing that. I, I don't have like a strong sense of how it works in practice, but uh, in a place like Hawaii, which has, you know, people don't think of Hawaii as remote, but it definitely has like more indigenous populations, more remote I think folks, of Hawaii like, as remote. I couldn't think of a... Meaning remote, like... more remote. No, not, not that Hawaii... Sorry, let me rephrase that. Not that the state is remote from us, but that people are very spread out, almost Alaska style in certain cases where there's like economies of scale problems, right? Uh, which maybe that's obvious to people, but it certainly wasn't obvious to me. Uh, so they use a blended model to reach a lot of students all across Hawaii, right? And they were able to stand up a school in the areas devastated by wildfires because in part of the flexibility that they have. Now, I think that the bottom line here is, look, is this a good experience for kids or not? And I think this is an area where Parents and kids, have, you know, they have to make a call here. And they interview some kids saying, hey, I was subject to bullying and I'm not at this virtual school. Some of the kids love it. You know, other experts raise questions about how healthy it is really scientifically for kids to be wearing VR headsets for hours a day. And I think we're just going to learn a lot. And I actually do think like some of the, like, she writes this article in a way that makes it hard to tell whether the examples she's given are the glitchy examples uh, amongst other 
strong examples of instruction or whether the glitchy examples and weird student moments were like common, right? Because like it all depends on how much you trust the vantage point of this author. So people can read it. There's all these examples of going Greece and Rome and Everest and all this kind of stuff. And like the challenges and opportunities that those different types of lessons offer, like there are all these virtual rooms. Um, but uh, if the people who created the school are listening, um, we would love to demo it. I, I'm sincere in that. I actually think like this, I reserve judgment. I really like, I, I although like I am not like by disposition, like inclined to think it's a good idea for kids to have headsets on for most of the day. And I, I don't like them even looking at computer screens most of the day. Uh, I am curious to see what the user experience for kids here is. Me too. I'll try it. I'm game. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people over there at the Optima Academy, let us know. Uh, Erica Donalds, let us know. We will try it out if you let us. And uh, we'll give you a fair reading, audience. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd love to scale Everest with a VR headset. Well, another shameless self-plug here, but I have a piece out in the post today that I thought was interesting considering that we've discussed the military recruitment issue a year ago um, when it was first kind of bubbling up. And I did a deep dive into how it's continuing this year. Um, I spoke to all five branches of the military and some people in it. And yet again, we are on track to be woefully short of our targets in terms of getting new recruits. Um, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Coast Guard are all well behind their their hopes for 2023. Um, the only two branches that are meeting their, their hopes or actually have exceeded them are the Marine Corps and uh, the Space Force, which was interesting to me. But <laughs> the Space Force is a very, very small amount of people comparatively. So it's a little bit harder just in terms of magnitude to actually read into that. Um, for context, a spokesperson for them told me that they had 517 new um, people ship out, which is 110% of what they were hoping for. And the Marines did not give me a firm number, but they confirmed that they're on track. But just to give a, a sense of on the larger scale, those are the two smallest uh, branches of all of them. Um, Coast Guard, 25% short. Air Force, 10% short. The Navy's behind by 6,000 people and the Army is behind by 10,000 people. So this is pretty considerable considering this is year on year stacking on top of each other. And I think potentially a really major crisis for us going forward because if this continues I, I and we have a war, like I don't know what the solution is if not a draft. Well, okay. And there are three, I have three possible sources for this uh, and you tell me which uh, what the sort of the rough sort of share of this problem comes from each one could be the relatively low unemployment generally which just makes the military less attractive two is uh whether there's something uniquely unfit about gen z <laughs> physically <laughs> or otherwise uh, and what your data says about that you know i.e like are they just not passing the physical aspects of this and then three is is there something about gen z and their distrust of the institution the military that could be driving this? so those are three maybe there's another possible explanation but how do you make sense of those three explanations and which one is doing the real work here yes to all three i think they're all yeah. um, pretty major <laughs> but um so i spoke to the army who directly said that they think that one of their biggest challenges right now is the um the health of the economy um and the the 
Also, another thing that's interesting, too, at the same time is they used to be able to incentivize people pretty effectively by, you know, helping with offset college costs or helping offset loans. And now that Gen Z is less likely to want to go down that path in general and more likely to want to go into the trades, you know, that's it's not as enticing to them to um, to use service as a, a vehicle for getting a, a degree, which is another major issue as well. On the eligibility front, it's dismal, to be honest. Um, there's a 23% of the recruitable population who are eligible based on their medical moral, which is like, I guess, their inclination and educational standards, which is down 6% since the pandemic. But this stat, I can't even wrap my head around, but 56% of 18 to 25-year-olds are currently overweight or obese. So that's a, a major barrier to entry. And then you layer on top of that the willingness to actually serve, which according to internal Pentagon data is 9% of 16 to 21-year-olds. Even lower, the Marines gave me a figure that I think it's 9% for um, for recruitable males and 3% for recruitable females. So that's down 4% since the pandemic. It's at the lowest since 2007. Um, and then you can layer in another issue here, which I think is the lack of a formative life experience like 9-11, where we don't really remember that. We've And our patriotism is in the gutter. Our trust of institutions in the gutter. Um, four in 10 Gen Zers say that the founding fathers are better uh, described as villains and heroes. So I think what percent you said four in 10. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I think across the board, it's, it's an uphill battle for, for recruiters. And it's interesting to see the different branches have very different responses to this and how they're actually going to, um, yeah. What is the this. solution here? So I just got off the phone with a recruiter, um, William Long, who's, uh, with the national guard in Michigan. And he was explaining to me that one thing that he is a big advocate for is this larger department of defense kind of bottlenecking that's happening right now with this policy that, that they have in place that the branches all have to like do their own version of, which is essentially if you've had an interaction with a mental health professional, you are disqualified unless you get that waived somehow. And it could be literally as simple as um, you were prescribed an antidepressant years ago by a family doctor. It could be you were grieving the death of a, a family member and just went to a counselor and weren't even diagnosed with anything. Does that mean if you just see a therapist? Like if you so just see like a therapist? If you have a history of interacting with mental health professionals, you have to go through a, yeah, like quite literally it's, it's, it's that severe, which I think is a relic of a time where it was not as common to just go to a therapist. And I think there's a, a legitimate concern about, you know, handing over major weapons to people who are maybe not mentally fit. I mean, we just had that soldier in South Korea run across the the border to North Korea. Like there's really dramatic examples of how that can go awry. So I understand the need to have some sort of filtering mechanism on that front. But he was explaining to me that it's just absolutely like they're shooting themselves in the foot with this. Um, and especially post-pandemic, considering that so many young people who just wanted to be have a healthy, positive interaction with a, a therapist are now having to go through a waiver system that he says is like roughly 50-50 in terms of whether they get that cleared. So that has not yet been fixed, but he that's something that he's been ringing the alarm bells on um, that I think definitely needs more systemic reform. Has there been any uh, attempt to raise the cap? Like, so right now, I think in most branches of government, 
the latest you can enlist is in your late 30s, probably, if I remember correctly. Like, is there any move to push that into the 40s or something just to expand the pool of people they can recruit? I have not heard anything like that in terms of um, like who they're targeting. I mean, I think they're they're going after younger people, and I think that's who's most amenable. But there are some requirements that they are relaxing for younger people. Um, in the Air Force, they're they're pulling back some of their restrictions on prior marijuana use, not current use, but if you've ever used it. Um, also, arm and neck tattoos, which I didn't even realize you're disqualified for. They're no longer that that's no longer the case. And the Air Force told me they did both of those changes this year and have actually seen a meaningful increase as a result. The Coast Guard opened six offices just this year alone for recruitment um, and expect to have another 10 in the next year. The bonuses that they're handing out are through the ceiling. I mean, the Navy up to $75,000 to if you're signing on with um, some cer- certain specialized jobs. But even regular high schoolers are, are getting a sign-on bonus and they're becoming more and more generous. Aside from the Marines who are sa- who say that calling yourself a Marine is your sign-on bonus, um, which is funny. They seem to be resistant to some of these trends somehow, I think maybe because of like their their images. Prestige. Is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The yeah. Navy, I think, has actually been the most proactive. They have on-ramp programs for people who don't meet the body weight threshold and also people whose um, standardized testing would have been disqualifying otherwise. And there's a little bit of a tension between the Army and the Navy on this front because the Army is saying very strictly, like, we're not going to relax our standards. Like, you have to meet them. Um, And the Navy is more interested in actually recruiting people and and bringing them through the process. So pretty interesting across the board to see them adapting in different ways. Yeah, I guess if if the what the military is saying is, if I want to hear you correctly, is if by on-ramp they mean, all right, you don't pass the physical fitness test now, but you can go to one of our programs. Yeah. We'll get you fit. Yeah. And then you could be in the program like, well, okay. Like, yeah, that's I not no, terrible. Like, I have no issue with like, that. I, yeah, like, obviously, we shouldn't lower the standard, but I think helping people get there, yeah, I mean, I'm fine with it. The, the tattoo stuff is silly. The mental health stuff seems overly broad. I mean, those all seem like sensible solutions. And, you know, this is one of those things like teaching that is just counter cyclical, right? Like, it, it, they have, a, they'll have an obstacle swing if the economy struggles. Like, it's, it's, you know, nobody was rooting for a bad economy, but that's, tends to be what helps on this kind of stuff, you know? I would also say, though, don't you think the the trends on the patriotism front and the actual willingness front are pretty insurmountable? Like, it's it's, it's a radical thing to join the military and, and dedicate your life to any job, let alone a job serving a country if you don't like it. And I think that's going to be, I don't know how they fix that. Yeah, it's interesting. I had an experience with this because when I was leaving Nashville, the year 2016, I had actually gone through the process for the Navy. I haven't told this story. I don't know if ever, but I went through the process for the Navy and I was ready to do intelligence reserves, the Naval Intelligence Reserves. And a couple of things happened. Trump won. And that that's, that in and of itself wasn't a reason not to serve. Like I would serve under any president, uh, even him. But I wound up getting in, back involved in the politics. So it was like a good example of like, the polarization, that war sucked me in. So I wound up starting arena instead of doing it. But I, I wound up going through the whole process and I found it really interesting and I was ready to sign up, you know? But that that's what made me think of the age thing because now, like, if, let's say I wanted to do it today, I'm too old for almost everybody, I think, except for the Naval Intelligence Reserves, the very thing I was doing. And I wonder if, like, especially for these specialized jobs, 
whether they would attract some people to do those types of things who are older. I don't know. Or yeah, maybe potentially. just even expand the pool. Yeah. 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 Actually, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, I suppose also though, there's the the issue of like, if you go too old, the investment of training someone and potentially them retiring on pension, um, which is definitely a concern. Is this why you're so touchy about Snowden? Mm. Touchy. <laughs> touchy about <laughs> Snowden. Uh, no, I mean, I had worked, I mean, my, my major experience with intelligence people was when I was at the UN um, for the US government and the State Department, and especially traveling overseas, working in embassies and stuff. You get to know a lot of people in the sort of shadows, if you will. But I've always been like a bit of a, like, I don't know how you, what you'd call it, but like a relatively law and order-esque Democrat. I don't know. Like my family, we were Giuliani Democrats growing up, which means totally different thing today. But, you know, we were, I'm, I've always been a little bit more on the side of like strong defense, like, you know, wave the flag. You know, we're always a very patriotic family. Not to say that people who are pro Snowden aren't patriotic, but I think I just had a certain interpretation of what that means, um, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm touchy, Ricky. Yeah. That's why I'm touchy about it. I'm touchy about people stealing our secrets. Call me old fashioned. No, I, I'm touchy about the government abridging normal, everyday people's privacy rates on a fundamental level. Yeah, normal, everyday people with wide access to all of our secrets that every hostile foreign nation wants to know. But you know, to each their own. Hey, this is Ricky, you've reached The Lost Debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hey, Ricky, Ravi. Uh listening to that sextortion thing, I just want to let you guys know, this happened to me in uh, 2012-ish, 20, somewhere around there, right before I graduated high school. And, uh, you know, these guys make it pretty believable. They had, you know, what made it seem like they hacked my Facebook and they were going around like they were about to send something to my family and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I just, I closed the laptop and prayed, but yeah, man, I can absolutely understand how uh, someone would take their own life over that. And that's just heartbreaking and sad and i i wish that wouldn't happen but you know thank you ricky for bringing light to this subject and you know just doing a good job thanks that's super great to hear that the story resonated with you and thank you for sharing your own story i since writing this story i've been shocked by how many people i know in my own life who've come to me and said the same thing it's it's way more common than i ever even would have dreamed from the moment that i started the story to the moment that it published. It's it's been incredible. So I'm glad to um, bring some light to it and and thanks for sharing. I really appreciate that. Glad to hear that you got out of that okay. All right. One more. Hi Ricky and Robbie. My name's Aaron from Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm just calling for a belated comment on your recent episode about decriminalization. In that episode, Ricky mentioned that Basically, there's no recreational heroin users who are functioning adults. And I wanted to offer as a counterexample uh, Dr. Carl Hart, who made the rounds um, a couple years back with his book, Drug Use for Grownups. Carl Hart is a neuroscience professor at Columbia, and I would say he's a highly or high-functioning, productive individual. And I know one example doesn't necessarily disprove that these drugs are very uh, – they have a – 
heavy impact on people's lives. And I certainly wouldn't want myself or my loved ones to get involved in some of these drugs, but I just wanted to throw out there that it is possible to use drugs like this responsibly and that, you know, there's an argument to be made that it's it should be up to the person what drugs they put into their own body. Ricky, this has been a popular segment. It makes me wonder whether we should do more. Uh, I can't remember if I said this, but we've been invited to go to Portland, Oregon to do a drive around with the police there, and which I actually think would be really, really, really interesting. And I was actually at Portland, Maine, which is very similar to Portland, Oregon's policies of decriminalization and was actually in a kind of tent like, uh, you know, sort of place where there were a bunch of people just shooting up in plain sight, which was just fascinating to see and have all sorts of thoughts. So, uh, if you are listening and you have places for us to go to really go out there and see the story, let us know. Like we, we are aware of certain places that have done interesting things that are worth looking at on this front. Uh, but Ricky, anything um, as it relates to that comment about like whether people are like able to pass in society on heroin? Yeah, I, I'm aware of this guy. And I, I mean, I, I find it compelling as an anecdote for sure. I would say it's definitely an outstanding example, um, and especially considering the typical heroin user and how difficult it is to procure that drug in an actually safe environment and to make sure that it's what you think it is and not laced with something. But yeah, I mean, I, we've, we'd actually in a previous voicemail kind of, I backtracked a little bit and saying that there are people who can like be getting treatment who are also very functional at the same time and, and definitely don't want to, um, preclude that reality. But I don't know. I think I've, I'd be interested to see you go to Portland, Ravi. I think this is like the sink, the sanctuary city situation of you're in your, your <laughs> upper west side townhouse saying I, we're a sanctuary city here. And then, you know, Abbott buses some people over to you. Maybe you'd feel otherwise if you were consistent on the would immigration you be, front. Would you be, but would you feel otherwise if they opened a, um, safe shoot up, whatever it's called spot right on your corner, maybe you would think Couple otherwise. Things couple things. Number one, I'd be consistent on my immigration position. I know. I'm not uh, a shot but, at you. I'm saying. Two, two is, is I see what you're doing. I'm impressed, which is this, this listener had some thoughts for you. You're trying to bring me into this. I'm not taking the bait. <laughs> Uh, I am, I just I'm doing as any, you, as, I would not love it if the apartment that I just bought had, had people shooting up right outside. So I'm not sure, Robbie, how would you feel? I wouldn't want people shooting up next door and like in, in their own apartment. Right. But there's a lot of things I wouldn't want them, you know, drinking 10 glasses of vodka either, but that shouldn't be illegal, you know? But would but you I like the government like, to procure an, uh, an outdoor safe space for people to do it under supervision? And, and if you, if you would, where would you like that to be? Well, I think there are different contours of the debate, right? There's the supervised injection sites, which we had a whole debate around that and a whole episode around that. There's public open use of drugs, which is, I would say is like the most extreme position that at least I'm willing to consider, but I don't think is practical politically in most places. So I wouldn't necessarily fight for it. And then there's like use in your own apartment and the privacy of your own home and all that kind of stuff, which I'm generally for decriminalization of even the hardest drugs in that context. But this is turning into another drugs okay. uh, con- no uh, you know, segment. Uh, but the, the bottom line is I, like with many things, my views are malleable on this based on what's going on. And as our friend Sadie in Portland has helpfully pointed out, there's a lot of stuff happening there that we should at least go see and learn from. Uh, and I have a good feeling that it will change the way I think about it by going there. 
which is why I think I'm going to do that when I get back from India. But with that, thank you everybody for listening. Rate, review, subscribe as Vicky, Vicky, Ricky said. The voicemail is 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. We will be back on Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Mm-hmm.